Welcome to The Hidden Island, a podcast where we talk about local island history. My name's Fiona Steele, and I'll be your host for this journey. This is the first episode of The Hidden Island by the PEI Museum and Heritage Foundation. To kick things off, today's topic is all about women and statues. You're probably wondering what they have in common, and the short answer is, not a lot, at least not here in PEI. That's because our statues of women are few and far between. I mean, we do have a statue of Anne Green Gables and a few of Ellen Montgomery, including a gorgeous bronze statue in Cavendish. It was installed in 2019 and features Montgomery and her cats. As much as I love Anne and value Montgomery's writing, I think it's safe to say she's not the only woman that's had an impact on the island. So, where are the rest of them? That's the mystery I set out to solve. But to get to that answer, we have to go back. I haven't quite got the time travel machine figured out yet, so I had to find other ways to explore the past. I figured the best person who could take me back to the beginning of statuary on PEI is a historian. Meet Ed. My name's Edward MacDonald. Uh, I teach island history and Canadian history at the university here at UPEI. I know, I know. He's a man. And we're talking about woman's history. But he's a well-known scholar, author, and knows this island inside and out. You always feel a certain amount of trepidation as a male raised in a rural male environment on PEI of pretending to understand the priorities and the needs for women. So understand that the perspective that I bring is limited or hobbled by my own set of values and and the way I was raised or socialized. And aside from that, not once did he mansplain anything to me during the whole interview, so he checks out. But anyways, Ed believes one reason why we don't have a lot of statues of women on PEI is because we don't have a lot of statues, period. Well, I think we have to begin by saying there's a lack of statues in general. Until recently, we had virtually none. Uh, The first real statue erected on Prince Edward Island was a monument to the Boer War, and that was 1903. The cataclysm of the Great War produced a cenotaph in 1925, and both of those are quite elaborate pieces of sculpture. But there really hasn't been much sculpture since then, until the 60s, Confed Center of the Arts, when it opened in 1964, included a gallery, and the gallery included some works of sculpture, which you can see on Queen Square, but they're not representative art per se. And so when we talk about statuary or monuments, we're really talking about the recent past. So there are not a lot of statues, but the statues are almost invariably of men. Along with being men, most of our statues feature controversial historical figures and politicians. But why is that? I suppose one could say if PEI was predominantly, overwhelmingly a rural province and culture for most of its history, farmers don't make statues. They don't necessarily see the importance of statues. That's usually elite professional class or middle class people. So what does it say about us? It says a little something about a lack of disposable income, but also something about the the kind of culture that we had, a vernacular rural sort of culture, uh, where honoring was done through our oral history and traditions that were passed down from person to person not through some kind of a public edifice or a you know, monument that was constructed. 
And so the nature of our society probably didn't support easily the creation of statues, but also simply a lack of disposable income. They're expensive. Now that's an interesting note, because it ties in with the conversation I had with Jane Ledwell about the purpose of statuary on PEI. So my name is Jane Ledwell. I am the executive director of the PEI Advisory Council on the Status of Women. And the she first made the connection that most of our statues, while featuring islanders, showcase people who are known far beyond our waters. We have had such a tourism orientation. Most of our public art and statuary is not interpreting islanders to ourselves so much as interpreting a vision of island history for visitors and for tourists. So that marketable brand of Ella Montgomery's writing is the reason that there's a statue of Montgomery. Because she has attracted visitors, I'm not sure, left to her own devices, that islanders would have put up a sculpture of of Montgomery to please ourselves. It's it's something that's created, in a sense, to, to attract visitors and to interpret a vision of ourselves to visitors. And likewise, the story of Prince Edward Island as the cradle of confederation and the centrality of the Charlottetown conference in Charlottetown and Prince Edward Island in its marketing campaigns, its tourism marketing campaigns, have led, I think, to the commemoration of those, uh, of the fathers of confederation in particular, and the men who were at the center of what came to be called confederation. and kind of became uh, another way of telling a story to visitors more than necessarily interpreting a history to ourselves. Well, as Ed says... There's nothing intrinsically evil about doing something as a tourist exercise. It made me wonder about the true purpose of her statues here on PEI. Amanda Creamer, born and raised on Prince Edward Island, did her undergraduate honors thesis about the Cenotaph in Charlottetown. So you could say she's looked at statuary a time or two. I asked her why we build statues in the first place. Um, well, that's, that's a complicated question, I think. Uh, well, complicated answer anyway, but I think the simple answer is to, to remember things. Um, you know, to remember people, to remember places, to remember things that happened to those people and places. More complicated answer would probably be that it's to build a collective identity to, uh, to kind of show what we value as a society and who we value. I asked Ed the same question as well. Statues are meant to commemorate. They're meant to remember. That doesn't have to be positive, although in many cases it is. But if you think of, for example, in various places in Ireland, uh, I'm thinking of one in Cork, there is statuary in commemoration of the famine, the Great Famine. That's not a celebration, and it's not an honoring, but it is a commemoration of a cataclysmic event of great importance. So statuary, unless it's simply a work of art, and all statues are also works of art, but unless it's simply a work of art, a statue is meant to mark or commemorate something. It's supposed to say, we should remember. And that memory can be a positive memory, but it can also be a way of getting at some very unpleasant truths about the subject of the statue, whether that's a person or an event or a thing. I think the real question is, what are we commemorating these individuals for? I mean, let's think about our war monuments around the island. None of them feature women, but women played a vital role in both world wars. In the first war, women stepped up to fill jobs traditionally occupied by men. And besides that, women did actually serve on the front lines as nurses as well. 
Islander Georgina Pope served even before that in South Africa and was one of Canada's first wartime nurses. In the Second World War, it's a similar story. Still, the figures standing on that war monument in Charlottetown are men. Maybe it's just me, but by having women missing, it almost sends the message that they didn't play a prominent role. You know, it's just being a nurse in the front lines. It's just a factory job. It's just housework. It's just raising a family as a single parent, while wondering if your husband's brother, sister, and son will make it home. Should we have a statue dedicated to women's efforts in the war? Because as it stands, when I look up at those soldiers in downtown Charlottetown, I don't see the women in my family represented, who aided war efforts years ago. I see men holding guns. People are looking for signs of themselves in the public discourse, in the, the story of the place where they live. Like where We want to see those, those signs that people like me belong here, right? Belong within that story that's given, given so much importance, it's given stone or bronze. We have the cenotaph that people go to, people recognize for so many reasons and, and, you know, attend ceremonies surrounding that statue every November 11th, for example. And, you know, it doesn't represent any women or women's role in war, even though we know that there were prominent island women who were uh, leaders in in nursing and and who were involved in, in those efforts. Is it such a bad thing that women don't see themselves represented in something that is focused on war? (laughs) Perhaps not. Maybe, you know, like historically, it hasn't been women who had a role in making decisions about war. Uh, More often, it's women who, you know, had to deal with the, the results of, you know, powerful men's decisions about war. I mean, she's got a point. It's not like women would have had much say in any of this at the time. Still, though, when you look at that war monument you're only seeing a very limited perspective in the story. The same can be said about other statues, like the John A. MacDonald one in downtown Charlottetown. When it was created, it was meant to celebrate MacDonald's contribution in founding Canada and PEI's role as the birthplace of Confederation. It was erected in 2009 at a cost of $75,000. Since then, it's been a photo setting for thousands of people. But here's the thing. McDonald is also known as the architect of the residential school system. In this system, thousands of Indigenous children were forcibly placed, abused, and even died. The effects of that school system have been intergenerational. None of this is mentioned in the plaque that rests next to John A. In this case, what are we commemorating? The creation of Canada, sure. But what message does that send to our communities that we would celebrate such an individual? And so there's calls to remove it from where it now sits. Jane talked about the reasoning behind why we could remove John A. We have archives, we have museums to put away some things that we're finished with. Their role in the public may be finished. And so maybe the right place to interpret a statue of John A. MacDonald is within a museum space or a heritage space where there's room for interpretation, where there's room to say, here are the circumstances that led to this being created. Here's why we don't have it on the street corner any longer. Here's why this person was considered worthy of statuary. And here's why a lot of people are profoundly offended 
profoundly moved to anger by this person being commemorated in this way. You know, we don't just have, we have a lot of different kinds of public spaces and we have a lot of different ways of interpreting history. So maybe, maybe it's okay to put things away when we're done with them. Still, some would rather see John A. stay and have him recognized for just how racist he was and the horrific things he caused. In that case, people are advocating for a new plaque beside him that would read something like... John A. Macdonald, first Prime Minister of Canada, genocidal maniac. So the topic of statuary itself is a loaded one that's full of inequalities. But back to women. We know there's a lack of women statues firstly because there's a lack of statues, as Ed said. The other reason is because women just haven't been involved. I mean, it's simple enough as Amanda puts it. I think the most simple answer, though, is uh, who has power in society? You know, traditionally it has been white men, and that's just kind of how it's gone. And they, with power comes money. And uh, whenever we fund statues that cost a lot of money to build, the people with the power and the money usually get to dictate what those statues are. I think, too, like, you know, traditionally what we venerated as a society is, like, the white male ideal, right? Like, courage, bravery. That's why you see so many war monuments. Let's just do a quick recap on those power dynamics and think about women's history in the 20th century. Women couldn't vote in federal elections until 1918. Women couldn't vote in PEI provincial elections until 1922. Now that's white women. Indigenous women were excluded from the Canadian suffragette movement. They weren't able to vote until 1960 without losing their registered status. Japanese Canadians weren't able to vote in a national election until 1949. Those dates aren't that long ago. There are people alive today within living memory of these events. Jean Canfield was the first PEI woman elected to the Legislative Assembly. She was elected in 1970. Pat Mella was the first PEI woman elected leader of a provincial political party. She was elected in 1990. Catherine Kalbeck was the first woman in PEI and Canada elected Premier. She was elected in 1993. I think we can do a lot more in all our public spaces and public buildings. I mean, my 13-year-old daughter, when we go into, into like a bank or into the legislature or into, you know, other spaces where they have photos of all the presidents of their boards of directors since the beginning of time, or all the speakers of the Legislative Assembly since the beginning of time. My 13-year-old daughter likes to call those walls of white men. (laughs) And, you know, when you start to notice it, it's really hard to not notice. Obviously, these statues are only one aspect of what is really a much wider problem in society about representation. But where should we go? I mean, my first thought was, do statues even matter? Are they still something worth caring about? When I asked around, I was met with a ton of people saying yes. They matter for representation. They matter for commemoration. They matter because they're public art. And they matter because they help us remember. So, I asked some people who we should commemorate next. I was met with answers like Georgina Pope, Catherine Kalbeck, and someone even suggested a statue commemorating a non-identifiable immigrant woman 
to represent the work they completed without recognition for centuries. And then, Ed said something that made me think. I'm a little bit leery of cherry-picking famous individuals. Societies crave heroes, and I have yet to find a hero that did not have feet of clay, or toes at least, if not feet of clay. And I got thinking about the statues we have in Canada and how their meanings have changed over the years as we've grown as a society and as we've seen different sides of history. That kind of complicates things. Since there's hardly any women's statuary in PEI, hence this whole podcast episode, I researched a statue called the Famous Five in Alberta. Here's a short version of their story. In 1929, five Alberta women played an integral role in helping women become persons under the law. Without this recognition, women could not be appointed to the Senate. Before 1929, only a, quote, qualified person could be appointed. And a person was qualified if they were over the age of 30, owned property worth at least $4,000, and lived in the province of their appointment. But here's the catch. When the British North America Act was created, the word person was really just a synonym for men, and that's what the courts were arguing in the 1920s. God, I love the patriarchy, don't you? (laughs) Together, the group campaigned for women's rights for decades, and they won. Today, they're known for the groundbreaking advances they made for women. Unfortunately, that's a really privileged way to see the story. Here's the other side of the story as Jane explained it to me. I mentioned the really wonderful sculpture of the Famous Five. Well, several of the Famous Five women were also, you know, persuaded by eugenics and were part of the eugenics movement that was emerging at the same time that they were pressing for women's suffrage. And that was seen as of a piece with their politics. So, you know, They were champions for gender, but uh, if you were a person whose difference was difference in ability or or difference in race and ethnicity, then that's pretty scary, right? And any individual is going to be bound up in the problematic stories that were part of their that were part of their their era, and particularly people in power and political power and privileged enough to have the attention of news and later of history, they're probably bound up in the stories of power that were suppressing and repressing and oppressing others within their communities. And so choosing individuals for statuary, I think, is... uh, I I don't want to be on the selection panel. (laughs) I don't want to be casting it in bronze, I have to say. So... What's the solution? Because as it stands right now, we don't have any women's statues in Charlottetown. But guess what? We've got statues of mice scattered around downtown. That's right, you heard it. There's actually nine bronze mouse statues spread around town in like something like a scavenger hunt. They're fashioned after Eckhart the Mouse, a fictional character from the true meaning of Crumfest, which is a children's story by PEI author David Wheel. I think it's the cutest thing ever. But it makes me wonder, if we can get mice around town, surely we can get some women, right? But maybe the answer isn't scrounging up money to commemorate an individual who, 100 years from now, might get red paint dumped all over her. Maybe the answer is a little more vague. I really think we need to move into more artistic expressions than statuary that represents individuals. 
so that would be maybe partly an aesthetic preference, but I think it's also a preference that is more diverse and inclusive. It forces people to think harder about, well, what's, what is the symbolism here? What is the story being told? Maybe it's individuals, you know, maybe they're human figures, but not attached to individual identities. I, I just think there are a lot of creative elements that, that can be done through public art and that leave more room for interpretation leave more room for framing the nuance of a story within a larger story. But, I mean, when we think about the individuals who are selected for statuary, you know, I don't think it's just here that they tend to be men. They tend to be historical figures. They tend to be caught up in, you know, historical stories that are really problematic. Thinking back to my original question that started this whole journey... I had asked myself, where are the women's statues? And the answer to that, really, it's simple. They're missing. Just like women's voices were missing for much of history. But now that I've thought about it and talked to a couple different people, I think the larger question is, what's next? Of course, that's not my place to say, because I'm just one voice in what has to be a community-led decision. But... All this talk has got me wondering if we should leave the individualistic, old white man statues to die and find something new instead, something more artistic, something that can talk about all sides of history, not just the oppressor. If you've made it all the way until the end of my rambles, I'd just like to say thank you so much for listening. As you may or may not know, the PEI Museum and Heritage Foundation is actually a not-for-profit organization. So if you enjoyed this at all, please consider buying a membership or donating. Now, this episode wouldn't have been possible without Ed, Jane, and Amanda, so I'd like to thank them for offering up their time to me. Also, that incredible music? That's Adam Gallant, a local producer. We'll talk soon for the next episode of The Hidden Island.